It is a joy to see you here to worship our God and King this morning. I look forward to diving into his precious truth together back in the book of Hebrews. So if you would turn there with me, Hebrews chapter 5, as we continue this wonderful study. And if you're here this morning and you have children, then it's likely at some point you've had the responsibility of helping them with their schoolwork in some way or another. And if you've had the privilege of helping a child with his or her schoolwork for any length of time, then you've probably also had the privilege of helping them through a struggle with a certain concept or assignment. And when our children struggle, there are really two types of struggles that we encounter as parents. The first type of struggle, of course, originates from the fact that we come across a a topic that's difficult cognitively for them to understand, and so we have to patiently come alongside and help them get there. In that case, they're, they're trying, they're giving their best effort, it's just hard for them. And so in those cases, it's not a matter of discipline, it's a matter of instruction. But there's a second kind of struggle that we also are responsible to help our children work through, and it's much more difficult to remedy than the first. And that second kind of struggle is really easy to spot because not only does it come with an intellectual challenge, it comes with a, in the form of a physical condition. And the scene plays out something like this. You tell your child it's time to do their homework or their assignment. And then mysteriously and instantaneously, they seem to lose all control of their motor skills. Their legs go limp. They fall to the floor. Their arms become heavy and their head hangs low. On many occasions, these physiological symptoms are accompanied by a deep sigh or a a groan as if you've just crushed them with a boulder of words. And when this happens as a parent, we recognize that this struggle is coming from an entirely different source. And at its root, this struggle is not one of cognition. No, this is an issue of lethargy. Kids, that's a fancy word for laziness. This This is apathy. This is laziness in which the child has the cognitive resources to carry out the task that's been given, but they don't have the will or the desire to do so. And so the solution to this problem is not only one of instruction, but also one of discipline. And I think as parents, we would all agree that this issue of lethargy or apathy or laziness is much more difficult in our parenting than the other simple cognitive Uh, difficulties that all of us face. We tend to have compassion for those that we deem to be trying their best and just simply struggling, but we we, we allow our patients to run thin when it's clear they have all the, the requisite ability. It's just a matter of effort. You know, while that condition is concerning to us in the parenting of our children, there's actually a type of lethargy that's far more dangerous, and it's certainly not reserved for children alone. And this kind of lethargy I will call throughout our message spiritual lethargy. Spiritual lethargy. Or to be more blunt, spiritual apathy or spiritual laziness. The sin of laziness when it comes to our pursuit of spiritual truth is deadly to our sanctification and it will stunt our growth in Christ. And the author of Hebrews this morning is going to confront this cancerous spiritual condition head on as we study our verses together. You remember, of course, the theme, the overarching theme of the book is the superiority of Christ. And we've spent several weeks now in this new section in chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 28, looking at Jesus' superiority to the Old Covenant priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood. 
And I've told you that this whole section, beginning in chapter 4 through the end of chapter 7, is one long unit, and that is true. But so far I haven't mentioned that within this larger unit there are actually four different components that make it up. We just finished the first component of this larger unit, and we transition now into this moment in the text in which the, the author takes an inspired pause. He takes an inspired pause on his arguments regarding Christ's priesthood. And if you've been with us throughout our study of Hebrews, you know this is not abnormal. It's very common for him to, to get into a, a deep theological discussion in the text, only to pause to get our attention and to call us to respond to what he has said. Often that response comes in the form of a warning, which we actually will get to another warning in the coming weeks. But really, this larger section breaks down into four components, and I want to give those to you now so you know where we're headed, but the first component that we just finished was this, introductory arguments regarding Christ's priesthood. That was chapter 4, verse 14 through 5, 10. Secondly, a personal admonition and warning, which we begin today. Thirdly, we'll see in chapter 6, about halfway through, a call to trust God's promise. And then finally, in verse uh, chapter 7, we come to further explanation of Christ's priesthood. So this is going to be a fairly significant pause on the dealing with the direct implications of Christ's priesthood, but it's, it's essential for us to understand. In fact, thematically, and even grammatically, we could take where we finished last week and jump to chapter 7, verse 1, and keep reading, and actually would make perfect sense. It's really clear that, that the author genuinely just takes a time out. And so he's going to come back to this flow of thought that we've been in, but he's going to take a break for a short time. And we could be tempted to want to skip over this section, but we can't do that. Because the author understands that we need some heart preparation to be ready for the instruction that's coming in chapter 7. So this morning we begin to study this extended pause in his argument. Let's read together Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 11 through 14. Concerning him we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now the theme that's just been introduced to us is this. Cultivate an increasing appetite for truth and press on to spiritual maturity. Cultivate an increasing appetite for truth and press on to spiritual maturity. This is the theme not only of our verses today, but it will be the theme for a couple of weeks here. And the transition into verse 11 is supposed to catch us a little bit off guard. It's, it's an abrupt transition. It's almost as if the author has, has gotten to this this critical point in his argument about the, the priesthood of Christ, and he's very passionate about this because he knows the implications of what he's saying. And yet, as he's explaining these wonderful, glorious truths about Christ, it's almost as if he's envisioning the eyes of his audience beginning to lazily roll back in the back of their heads. Their eyes are glazing over. And if we're honest, 
some of us may identify with that feeling just a little bit. We've just spent the last several weeks discussing basically the same topic over and over again, looking at the superiority of Christ's priesthood from just slightly different angles. And you may have found yourself at times thinking something along the lines of, you know, this has been great, I've enjoyed this, but we can move on, you know, we could go on to something else. But understand, the author's just getting warmed up. He's not nearly done talking about the priesthood of Christ or the implications of the priesthood of Christ. In fact, he hasn't even made it to the punchline of his argument. It doesn't come until chapter 7. All that we've studied so far, as wonderful and rich and deep as it was, was really just preparatory information for what he really wants us to understand. But because it would be detrimental to our soul and our spiritual growth to miss the riches of what he's going to explain, he decides to take this inspired pause for the purpose of addressing the heart issue that has caused us to grow weary with thinking on these rich truths. And I have to warn you ahead of time that his inspired diagnosis is stern and pointed. With that in mind, read again verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Now, he introduces in verse 11 this overarching concern that he's going to address, and we're simply going to call it spiritual lethargy. Spiritual lethargy. He says, concerning him, we have much to say. Now, there's a lot of debate about this pronoun, him. Who does him refer to? I think in context, specifically, he's referring to Melchizedek because he mentions Melchizedek last at the end of verse 10. And he's going to mention Melchizedek leading into chapter 7, verse 1. It's as if he just picks up where he left off and he keeps going. At the end of verse 10, he says, according to the order of Melchizedek, concerning him we have much to say. There's a lot of interesting things that need to be said about this man Melchizedek. But understand, as he says that, it's not really about Melchizedek, of course. It's about the Jesus Christ and his superiority as a priest, but he's got to explain Melchizedek for us to understand what he's saying about Christ. And he's going to do that as we get to chapter 7. In fact, I would argue that this pronoun him must refer to Melchizedek just simply by looking at how he comes out of this Long pause back into his main subject in chapter 7. Look at the end of chapter 6, how he closes out this pause, and how he continues in verse uh, chapter 7. So Hebrews 6, 19, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He, he brings us back to this topic of the priesthood of Christ uh, through the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter 7, one, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, goes on, he goes on to explain him. All I'm saying is he has literally paused from verse 10, and he'll pick it back up in verse 1 of chapter 7. But first... He's got to deal with the hearts of his listeners and our hearts this morning because he's deadly concerned that we'll miss the implications of what he's saying, and they're too important for us to miss. And as he gets into this explanation of the priesthood of Christ, he realizes there's a problem, and that's what he addresses here now in verse 11. He says, concerning him, 
We have much to say, and it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain. Now, it's, it's easy if we just look at that phrase on the surface and, and think this is an issue of cognition. It's hard to explain because these are hard things to understand. But that's not what he means at all. On closer examination, it becomes clear that he has the, the second kind of problem in mind. Not cognition, but spiritual lethargy. And we see that because of how he describes it at the end of verse 11. He says, it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You've become dull of hearing. Here's the culprit. Here's the reason the author finds it necessary to pause his argument. And the key to understanding what he's saying is for us to understand the Greek word translated dull. The Greek word literally translated, it means lazy or sluggish. Your, your ears have become lazy. Your ears have become sluggish. They've become dull. He's not saying that these people have any real issue with their ears and their, hear, their physical hearing. He's not saying that the, the concepts, even about Melchizedek, are, are too hard for them to cognitively understand. What he's saying is you have a heart problem, and that heart problem is blocking up your spiritual ears so that you can't understand what I'm saying and you can't apply it correctly. Just like a child becomes a limp biscuit and slides out of their chair when they're told to do their homework, these believers are having a sluggish, apathetic response to these deep arguments about the priesthood of Christ. And like a faithful parent, the author recognizes that he has to address this sinful disposition before he moves on because otherwise they're going to miss the richness of it entirely. But before we move on to his description of this sluggish response and how it's evidencing itself, you know, as I've studied this text, I can't get over this nagging question. The question is, where does spiritual lethargy come from? Where does it come from? How, do we, how does a person fall into spiritual laziness or spiritual apathy? Because understand that lethargy is an outward fruit of an inward heart problem. The laziness, the, the outward manifestations of it are not the real issue. And to solve it, you've got to peel back the layers and get to the heart of that problem before you can actually address it. And so, as I've thought on this, I, I want to mention four common causes, four common root causes for spiritual lethargy. Understand this is not exhaustive, but I think Many times when we find ourselves spiritually apathetic, it'll fall under one of these heart sins. The first root cause of spiritual lethargy I want to mention is that of selfishness. Selfishness. You know, the sin of selfishness is a root heart sin that produces all kinds of other sins in our lives. The sin of selfishness craftily deceives us into living as if the goal of life is personal satisfaction, personal recognition, and personal enjoyment, which is really the definition of, of the philosophical term hedonism. It's living life as if the goal of life is personal pleasure. And when we do this, we're, we're constantly prioritizing our own perspectives and our, our own desires over, over others. In addition to that, we're often tempted to think that what's really needed when life gets hard is self-care. What I really need right now is just, I need to take better care of myself. 
When life is hard and stressful, your flesh tempts you to think that the best possible medicine will be to care for yourself by pleasing yourself. And the telltale sign that you're giving in to the sin of selfishness is when you begin to think that the thing you really need to fill you up is a worldly substitute for God's chosen means of edification. And what I mean is this, when you find yourself physically exhausted, stressed out, and therefore quick-tempered, depressed, and ready to quit, if your reflex is to think what I really need to do right now is watch Netflix. What I really need right now is a new toy, new car, new house. What I really need right now is a new relationship. What I need right now is a vacation. What I need right now is some physical pleasure. As soon as you begin to insert one of those temporal solutions to a spiritual problem, watch out. Watch out. Because you've just believed the lie that you can use temporal things to fix spiritual problems. I'm not saying that there's no place for physical rest. Many times there, it's exactly what you need is physical rest. Nor am I saying that there's no place for entertainment and enjoyment in life. God has made those things for our benefit. What I'm saying is when we pursue those temporal things as a potential solution to a spiritual problem, what we'll find is that the problem's not only unresolved, it's exacerbated. It makes it worse. And if you pursue personal pleasure under the guise of self-care, you'll find yourself isolated from the body of believers and isolating yourself from God's word in the sense that you either stop reading it or you read it without really applying your mind and heart. And when we give in to the sin of selfishness, what, what we really want from the word of God, from other Christians, and from preaching are quick snippets of truth that help us feel encouraged and happy about life. And if you give in to that, you'll become what the author of Hebrews describes here as dull of hearing. Selfishness is a deadly danger and temptation that leads to spiritual lethargy. Another common root problem that leads to spiritual apathy is rebellion. Just flat out rebellion. In this instance, a person knows what God's word says but refuses to submit to it. There's some pet sin that's become precious to that person, and they're unwilling to let it go and repent. And that hard-hearted rebellion closes off their ears to the word of God in every form. They don't want to read it, they don't want to hear it preached, and they don't want you trying to apply it to their life. They've become dull of hearing. A third root cause that leads to spiritual lethargy is that of pride, the sin of pride. And this happens when the Bible begins to challenge a previous understanding that we've held very ardently. You know, it can be very disorienting and unsettling for us when we've believed something our entire lives and then we hear a message preached or we read something in the scripture that begins to challenge what we've always thought was true. It can be very disheartening, unsettling. And in, when we, instead of humbling ourselves and recognizing that it's we who must change rather than manipulate the word of God to meet our desires, when we do that, what happens is we, we harden our hearts and we close off our ears and we become dull of hearing. And that resistance results in ears that have lost their appetite for truth. There's a fourth and final root cause I'll mention this morning, and I think this is probably the one in context that the, the people are dealing with most most obviously, and that's the cause of unbelief. 
unbelief. That when the sin, with the sin of unbelief, we get hung up mentally on some teaching of Scripture that's difficult for us to believe. We just can't comprehend how it could be true. And for some Christians, it's the love of God. For others, it's the wrath of God. For some Christians, it's the doctrine of election. For others, it's the reality of personal responsibility. But regardless of what the issue is, if you get hung up on it and you don't humbly choose to believe the word of God, believe that what he has said is true, and instead of that, hold on to your unbelief, you will find yourself dull of hearing. You'll come to a place where you just want to close it off. You'll lose your appetite for the word of God and your tolerance for deep meditation on rich truth. You know, meditation on the word of God is built on the foundation of faith and belief. It assumes that you're coming to the word believing that what God has said is true. And so fundamentally, belief closes off that meditation, both the desire of it and the effect that it's to have in our lives. When we do that, we find ourselves falling into this category of being dull of hearing. And before we move on, let me just mention one other thing that's really crucial for us to understand. Notice what was not on the list of causes. Circumstances. Circumstances is not one of the root causes of spiritual lethargy or laziness. You know, almost like clockwork, when we recognize that we're spiritually lethargic and we want to wake ourselves up, we begin to try and identify the problem by analyzing our circumstances. We look for stress in our home. We look for stress at work. We look for stress in our finances. Or, or we look at our failing health and we say, aha, there it is. There's my issue. I'm struggling with spiritual apathy because I'm under a great load of stress as a result of my difficult circumstances. But understand that our circumstances are never the cause of our sinful responses. Never. Our circumstances are merely the means that God uses to help us see the character deficiencies that were existing there all along in our hearts. Your circumstances act like a spotlight that shine on your heart to help you see the sins that remain. This is why Paul could say with great conviction the words of Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And if you've lived the Christian life for more than six months, then you know that not all of our circumstances turn out rosy and happy, do they? So how in the world can Paul say with a straight face that all things work together for good for those who love God? He can say that because he understands that God will weave our circumstances providentially to bring about the maximum spiritual good in our lives and the maximum glory to his name. It means that God intends to use your circumstances, both the good and the bad, for your spiritual edification and maturity. And this is crucial for us to understand and to keep in the forefront of our minds because if we don't, then when our circumstances begin to scream at us, if we mistakenly think that the circumstance itself is the real issue, then we will find ourselves ultimately dull of hearing. We'll fall into one of these other sin patterns and without even realizing it, even unintentionally, we will clog our ears and become dull of hearing the truth. The results of that 
are devastating. The reason that I've taken a pause to go through these root causes is because we've got to be serious and on guard against spiritual lethargy. It will ruin us. And we know that because of how he describes the effects of spiritual lethargy in the rest of the passage. We're going to see two evidences that he's identified that clearly help us know when we are dealing with spiritual lethargy. Two evidences. Evidence number one is in verse 12, and it's this. Failure to grasp basic truths. Failure to grasp basic truths. Look back at the text, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you. Now, this is a scathing rebuke of these Christians. We don't know how long they've been believers, but we know they must have been believers long enough that the author clearly expects that they should have gained some level of maturity at this point. In fact, he says, you ought to be at the place where you're ready to teach other people. Now, when he says that, he's not saying that that every Christian will be gifted to teach in the sense of standing up and giving a Bible lesson. What he's really highlighting is the effect of the Great Commission. We're all called as Christians to make disciples. Discipleship always includes teaching in some form. What he's saying is you ought to have progressed to a level of maturity that you can turn around and walk alongside someone of less maturity and teach them truth. Every Christian ought to be going through that process. But something's happened here. Something's interrupted this process in the lives of these Christians. Instead, they've not only failed to teach other people, he says, I'm actually having to teach you, and not just teach you, I'm having to teach you the same things over and over again. You're in spiritual quicksand. You're making no spiritual progress. And it brings us back to our illustration of trying to teach a child an objective truth when their ears are dulled with laziness and apathy. We find ourselves saying, you know, you ought to be able to teach this to your younger brother by now. Why are you acting like you've never heard this? I've literally taught you this for years. Are we really back here again? That's the feeling that the author's having towards these believers. These believers have failed to move forward. They failed to make progress, and so they find themselves on the other end of this rebuke. And we might be tempted to say, well, that's... That's kind of harsh, right? I mean, that's kind of harsh. Uh, he ought to be a little more patient with them. I mean, some things in the Bible are hard. They're hard to understand, and he, he ought to give time for them to learn those things. But understand, he's not talking about the minute details of systematic theology. In fact, what he's saying is you have failed to move past the most basic fundamental elements of salvation. You're at the starting gate still. You say, how how do you know that he's talking about that? Well, look back at verse 12. He says, you have need again for someone to teach you, what? The elementary principles of the oracles of God. The elementary principles. What he's saying is, look, you're still at the basics. And beginning in chapter 6, next week, he's going to get into what those basics are, the things that they're hung up on. But we're going to save that for next time. Instead, he focuses on this this illustration and says, you've come to need milk and not solid food. You're still hung up on the the basics. Now, now this this illustration of needing milk and not solid food is one that resonates with every human being. It's, it's, It's common to our experience. What he's saying is, 
just as our physical diet changes as our bodies physically mature, so our spiritual diet should change as we spiritually mature. I do want to say, however, though, that there's, there, there's, he's not saying that there's no place for spiritual milk, that spiritual milk has no place in the life of the Christian. That's not what he's saying. All of us start on spiritual milk. We all start at the beginning. And I, I want to say, if you're a new believer here this morning, and you're just beginning to learn and walk with the Lord, that you don't need to feel guilty, for example, if you've never heard the name Melchizedek before in your life. That's okay. You don't need to feel guilty if you don't understand some of the theological terms that we use yet. That's okay. It's okay to begin at the beginning. That's what is meant here. By the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, as you apply the Word to your life, you will learn and grow. The problem here is he's talking to people who should have learned this long ago. They're not baby believers. At least they shouldn't be. They shouldn't still be on the milk. You know, just as there are few things more endearing than watching a newborn baby enjoy a bottle of milk, there are few things more enjoyable than talking to a new believer who's, who's excited about the gospel. It's invigorating to spend time with people like that. But you know what's not invigorating? Coming home to your 15-year-old son drinking a bottle of milk on the couch. There's nothing sweeter and enduring about that scene. And that's the feeling the author has right now. It's like he's barged into the house and his 15-year-old is still drinking a bottle. And he says, hold it. We need to talk. We need to talk about some things because this is not right. You should have progressed beyond this by now. And he, now that he's introduced this idea of, of milk and solid food, he uses that as the basis for the second evidence that they are failing to mature as they should. Evidence number two of spiritual lethargy is failure to develop a mature palate. Failure to develop a mature palate. Look back at the text again in verse 13. He says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. When you're dull of hearing or characterized by spiritual lethargy, that will show up in the form of spiritual immaturity. And this is so helpful for us because it reveals the fact that spiritual maturity does not come as a product of time alone. What, what I mean is this. A person's spiritual maturity cannot be accurately determined simply by asking them, how long have you been a Christian? Unfortunately, that doesn't mean much. The, the spiritual maturity will evidence itself in the form of a mature palate when it comes to the spiritual truths that they consume. And in this case, the author is still using this, this idea of milk versus solid food. Milk refers to those basic fundamental truths of the gospel that we all have to understand at the beginning of salvation. The nuts and bolts of the truth. And understand that those are essential to all of our faith. And they remain essential to our faith throughout our Christian lives. But they're not the sum total of all that God's revealed in Scripture. And God intends for the Christian to move on, to understand more, to apply more. And so those who only have an appetite for the most elementary truths of Scripture and therefore only read and listen to those things that are easily grasped and basic to salvation are not actually acquainted with the Scriptures or salvation in the way God intends. That's what he's saying. Here he refers to it as the word of righteousness. 
If you're only drinking milk, you're not accustomed to, acquainted with the word of righteousness. And I think that phrase, the word of righteousness, ties back into the larger context of what we've been studying with the the great high priesthood of Christ. It was the righteousness of Christ. You know, we've been talking about his perfect life. It was his righteousness that he secured by his perfect life and offered on the cross for us that purchased our redemption. And if you limit yourself only to thinking on the very basic elements of the truth, and when you dive deeper into issues of righteousness and what really happened when you were saved, we, we peel back the layers of that theology, you begin to choke a little bit on those truths. In the same way that when you begin to transition a child from milk to solid food, they often choke as they're just learning the mechanics of how to eat without choking. In fact, he says these Christians are evidencing the fact that they've not become accustomed to the word of righteousness to the point that they are spiritual infants. Look back at the text. He says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Though these Christians who have been saved for for some time, a number of years, they are infants, not babies, not children, Literally, the word is, you are infants. And it's evidenced by the fact that they're choking on the deeper truths of the faith that he's begun to teach in this text, proving that they've not yet developed a mature palate. He's saying that this discussion of the great high priesthood of Christ should have had you hungry and excited and coming back for more as we marveled at who Christ is. But instead, your eyes are rolling back in the back of your head. It's because you've yet to press on to maturity as you should. You've become spiritually lazy and lethargic. It's not a matter of capacity. It's a matter of choosing routinely to drink only milk when you should be pushing yourself to eat solid food. By the way, this is why the state of the church in America and larger evangelicalism is anemic and mystical, and starved to death. Unfortunately, many pastors and churches in an effort to attract unbelievers and to grow large churches have abandoned deep, theologically rich preaching, teaching, and discipleship, and they've substituted in their place the theological equivalents of ice cream, marshmallows, and gummy bears. And we wonder why Christians aren't growing It's one thing for individual Christians to to cling foolishly to their milk bottles rather than feasting on the solid food of the word. But it's another thing entirely for pastors and churches to routinely serve milk instead of steak. May we come to the word of God and the pulpit not with a baby's bottle, but with a fork and knife, ready to dive in and to learn. Richard Phillips says, Evangelicals heartily agree that the Bible is true, but they simply don't take time to learn what it teaches. He goes on to say, Many observers of the church today point to a false antithesis between the heart and the mind that has led to anti-intellectualism among evangelicals. If you care about theology, then you must be spiritually cold and unloving. The result, laments Os Guinness, is that we are people with a true, sometimes a deep experience of God, but we are no longer a people of truth. Brothers and sisters of North Lake Bible Church, 
Let me admonish you as I have admonished myself. Don't give in to the temptation of spiritual lethargy in which you satisfy yourself only with the same basic truths over and over again. But take up the word and read. Read it all. Read it fast and read it slow. Read John and read Leviticus. Read Romans and read Isaiah. Read Revelation and read Lamentations. But don't, don't waste this rich meal of the word of God that he's given to us. Don't settle for ten tips for a happy marriage and a prosperous business. In short, press on to maturity in the faith. And as you do that, you will be unplugging your ears and hearing the truth as God intends for it to be heard, which will cause you to grow rather than staying in a place of spiritual lethargy. explains that the telltale sign of a believer who's not given in to this spiritual lethargy is by eating solid food. Look back at verse 14. But solid food is for the mature. Solid food is for the mature. Just as we associate eating solid food with a child's growth and development, the Christian, as he or she grows, evidences that in the appetites that he or she has for spiritual truth. What's on your spiritual plate? What do you eat when it comes to Bible study? Have you grown accustomed to only reading simple devotional books that quote a verse or two with five or ten pages of application that largely take that verse out of its context? If you have a spiritual diet like that, you're starving yourself. You're starving yourself. Get yourself a good study Bible and start reading the inspired words of God himself. We've got them in the bookstore. If you can't afford one, just tell them we'll give it to you. But take up the book and read and marvel at what God has given to us. Learn to eat better and your appetites will change. And you'll find yourself growing in Christ. And the reason this is all so important, the reason that the author is belaboring the point and that I'm belaboring the point is because what he says the end of this spiritual maturity is, is the gift of discernment. It's discernment. Look back at the text, verse 14. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now, notice that there are several ingredients to this in this phrase. First of all, notice the word practice. Because of practice, they've trained their senses to discern good and evil. This training, this spiritual training, comes as a result of practice, of discipline. This is a, really a word for athletics. He's comparing the, our growth and our pursuit of growth in Christ to, the, to an athlete who pursues growth in a certain sport. You, you may have talked to a, someone who has excelled greatly in a particular sport, and they can tell you stories of after they reach the level of proficiency, being in a game and doing things that they don't really remember how they did because their body just seemed to do it. The, the ball was just thrown at the right time to the right place. They, they made the, the basket seemingly just out of mechanics. Their body just did it. Why does that happen? Because they practiced over and over and over and over again until their body just did it. That's the idea here. That the mature believer, if you meet a mature believer, it didn't just happen. God didn't just zap them with maturity. 
It means that they spent time studying the word until they understood the word and they ate the word over and over and over again. And ultimately, the Lord uses that by his grace and the power of the spirit to grow us one degree after another in our maturity. Only after a person has dedicated himself or herself to the disciplined practice of studying and applying God's word do they reap the benefits of discernment. And discernment, Christian, is an indispensable gift. We, we can't overestimate the gift of discernment in the Christian life. And that's because discernment acts as a protection against sin and error. He says specifically here at the end of verse 14 that this mature believer has learned to discern good and evil. Good and evil. The Christian, through dedication to God's word, gains discernment to distinguish sin from righteousness. So there's a moral component to discernment. And you've seen this. If you've grown in Christ in your life and you've seen this, there are activities that you perhaps used to be a part of with, with wholehearted agreement that you couldn't imagine doing now. Why? It's because the Holy Spirit has grown you through the word to a place that you're now convicted that those things are sinful. You have discernment to see clearly. That's wrong, and this is right. So I don't want to be a part of that anymore because I want to honor Christ. That's what discernment does. But discernment does something else. Not only does discernment give us a right dividing line between sin and, and righteousness, it gives us a right dividing line between error and truth. It helps us identify what is true teaching and what is false teaching. This is the promise that we're given here in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about this reality. We'll begin in verse 11 and read down through verse 14. He says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. What is he saying? He's saying when you dedicate yourself through the practice of studying the Word of God and applying the Word of God and pushing yourself to understand more of God's revelation and applying it to your life, you become a better Berean. You understand how to take the Word of God and test what's taught to you so that you're not thrown like a child back and forth by every wind and wave of doctrine. It protects you from error so that when someone stands to teach or preach, whether it's a, a physical person or on TV or on the radio, and they begin to teach some form of a newfangled buffoonery, you're not tricked by, by the craziness that they are giving you, no matter how slick and sly they are in their presentation. But understand, the opposite's also true. Why is it that both false teachers and shallow teachers attract such large crowds that often contain large percentages of people who profess to know Christ. Why is that? The answer is because they lack discernment because all they've ever eaten is spiritual milk. That's all they've ever been fed. So they're left weak and they're left vulnerable. 
And let me just take a pastoral pause here and say, if, if you meet someone on a Sunday morning that comes to North Lake Bible Church, and in the course of conversation it becomes clear to you that this is a person who's coming in weak and vulnerable, having only ever had milk to drink, don't chastise them. Welcome them and invite them to eat. Invite them to eat. If they've found their way, we're glad they're here. Don't push them back to where they came from and say, you went to where? To what church? You listen to what teacher? Where's your brain, man? Why were you listening to that guy? Don't do that. Say, I'm glad you're here. You want to sit with me? You want to come to lunch afterwards? I'd love to hear more about your story and tell you more about mine. Do that and let them begin to eat. And you know what? They'll do that for a while and then they'll meet someone that comes in and they'll say, hey, you want to go to lunch? I'd like to tell you some things. And it goes on and it goes on. And it goes on. Sometimes we forget where we came from. Sometimes we, we, we think that we've known what we have known all of our lives. And we haven't. So let's show that same charity and grace to others. You know, there have been times in church history in which the word of God was not translated into the common language of the people. So the people were literally dependent on the Pope and priests in the Catholic Church to tell them what their interpretation of the word was. This is what ultimately led to the Protestant Reformation. In the Catholic Church, you would come and you would, you would hear the, the scriptures in a language that was not your own, and you had no way to check and say, is that really what the Bible says? And so what happened is the, the Bible began to be translated into the common language, and because of the invented, uh, in, uh, inventing of the printing press, the Bible begins to go out in huge numbers, faster than ever before, and preachers like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and others begin to rise up and they start preaching the Bible as it really is in context, and people start to read it like good Bereans, and guess what? An explosion of maturity and, and con conversion begins to happen, and we call that the Protestant Reformation. But what's interesting is in my study this week, I was reading Calvin's commentary, and Calvin often refers to the, the issues of his time about he'll, he'll say things against the Pope or against the Catholic Church and these kinds of things. And he goes into that issue in his commentary on this passage. But then he says something else. He turns from talking about the Pope and, and the priest and keeping the word from the people to the people who now have the Bible in their hands and yet still don't read it. And this is what he says. But among those who are freed from this diabolical prohibition and enjoy the liberty of learning, there is yet often no less indifference, both as to hearing and reading. When thus we exercise not our powers, we are stupidly ignorant and void of all discernment. You know, there's a difference between ignorance and stupid ignorance. Ignorance is simply you don't know, and you need to be taught. Stupid ignorance is you have every ability to know and you choose not to learn. And what Calvin is saying is we have chosen discern, a lack of discernment when we refuse to discipline ourselves to take the rich treasure of God's word and to feast. We live in a time that it's unthinkable not to have the Bible in our own language. If, I, if we had a show of hands, we'd probably have 10 different translations in English represented in this room. We have no excuse not to take up the gift of God's word and to read and be trained by it to then have discernment. 
Calvin's quote is a great lead-in for us to take a moment and survey our own hearts. Let me just ask us a couple questions this morning. A couple of encouragements. Test your spiritual ears. Test your spiritual ears. Have you grown dull of hearing biblical truth? Are personal Bible study and biblical preaching and spiritual conversations around the truth your personal desire? Is that your personal pursuit? Are there any aspects of biblical doctrine or biblical truth that you've chosen to close your ears to for some reason? Is your heart sensitive to the truth? Does your heart desire biblical truth? I think it's important to note that as believers, we can and do go through what we'll call dry spells in which Bible study and spiritual disciplines require a lot more effort on our part. The truth is very few people wake up early in the morning ready to have hours of Bible study. It's, it's a discipline in which we discipline ourselves for these things and a love for them grows more and more over time. That's absolutely true. But if you test your spiritual ears this morning and you find that if you're honest, there's really no desire for God's truth and, and you have no pursuit of God or his truth, then there's another evaluation that needs to happen in your heart. Have you really come to the place in which you've repented of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to understand that your sins separate you from a holy God and that you have no hope of being right with God except through Jesus Christ and what he's done for you? That he's lived a perfect life and offered that life on the cross as a sacrifice to pay for your sins and then rise again from the grave in victory over sin and death. Understand that if you have no appetite for spiritual things, you have to ask, do I have an appetite for Christ himself? Have I come to really love him? Because when we love Christ, it leads to loving what Christ has said in his word in increasing measure. So test yourself this morning. If, if there's really no flame in your heart whatsoever for the things of God, ask yourself, have I really repented and put my faith in Christ? But if you know for certain you're a believer this morning, but you have to admit, as, as we'd all do in some, at some level, that your ears for spiritual truth are more dull than they should be, then there's a second encouragement I would have for us, and that is to search yourself for spiritual apathy. Search yourself for spiritual apathy. apathy, apathy. If your appetite for truth lacks maturity, it may be because... Like the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews, you've given into some form of spiritual lethargy or apathy. In that case, ask yourself, is it selfishness? Have you fallen into the trap of trying to craft your circumstances in such a way that they fulfill your selfish desires? You know, God calls us to prioritize Him first and then others before ourselves. Therefore, if we give in to the worldly idea that the key to loving others is to first love ourselves, then we shouldn't be shocked when we are overcome with spiritual apathy because we've flipped around the paradigm that God has given in his word. Is it rebellion? Are you convicted over a certain sin in your life, but you're stubbornly refusing to repent of that sin? Is it pride? Is there some long-held belief that you've always thought was true, but that's now being challenged and confronted by the word of God, and you're, you're holding on to your previous views? Is it unbelief? 
Have your circumstances caused you to question the truthfulness of some biblical teaching or promise of God? Have you entered into a difficult season of life in which you are questioning the goodness of God or the sovereignty of God or God's wisdom in choosing this plan for your life? If you don't confess that unbelief and cling to faith based on what God actually says is true, you will remain in a state of spiritual apathy. But the good news here this morning is that we've already learned that there is one who stands at the right hand of the Father. And so if you're here this morning and you've been in a state of spiritual apathy for a week or ten years, understand Jesus Christ is able to strengthen you and help you to turn away from that spiritual apathy and to run towards him with new fervor and new spiritual life. He stands at the right hand of the Father and sympathizes with our weaknesses, even this weakness, if you would only come to him, confess your spiritual apathy, asking for his strength, coming to the throne of grace with confidence. He will strengthen you then to pick up the word and feast and to grow. Let's not miss the opportunity that we have as believers to study, love, know, and live the precious word of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you humbly for these truths, though they in many ways step on our toes at times. They confront areas of our life that we would rather not face. At the same time, in your grace, you force us to look at ourselves with an accurate lens so that we can see what's really there. And God, it's not our desire, for those of us in Christ, it's not our desire to be spiritually lethargic. We don't want to be spiritually apathetic. We, we don't want our hearts to be unmoved by truth. But God, so many times we are deceived by our own flesh and by different sinful things that enter our minds, take our attention away from the rich truth of your word. God, help us cling to the truth, to fight for the truth, and by the power of your Spirit, help us to grow in not only our knowledge, but in our application of the rich truths of your word. We ask all this in Christ's precious name. Amen.